Hey everyone, today we're joined by Peter Christian, whose resume includes working as executive director at the Crayola Corporation, and he's also worked as founding partner and president at business consultant Enterprise Systems Partners Incorporated. Um, Pete's current focus is on why businesses and managers succeed or fail, and he has written two books on this topic, uh, What About the Vermin Problem and Influences and Influencers, both of which are available at www.petechristianbooks.com. And Pete's uh, been gracious enough to join us today for a discussion on um, success, failure, and leadership and maintenance and reliability. Pete, thank you for being here today. Great. Thank you for having me. You know, and uh, when we talked uh, before the podcast on our, on our pre-call meet and greet, um, you talked a lot about what kept you up at night, um, especially at Crayola. Uh, you know, a lot of our maintenance and reliability people, uh, that, that's what they live on the job, um, worrying about what, might, what machines might go down, uh, uh, how to design reliability into the machines. Could you talk about some of the things that kept you up at night, uh, especially uh, when you were at Crayola? Sure. Uh, I actually wasn't responsible for the ongoing operation of the machines. Uh, I was in the engineering side, which was to look at replacement of machines or to get capital to repair machines when some heavy duty uh, maintenance work was required. Uh, but I was tightly tied in with the, uh, the operation folks and with mechanics. So if problems did crop up, then uh, we would talk about it. And uh, since we were uh, not a, uh, we were a support function. We didn't, you know, get involved in production. When something happened with production, we needed to be there to make sure the production kept running. Uh, what happened, because uh, I always got in early uh, each day and the mechanics were there, was one day uh, the head mechanic came in and I could tell it was serious because he was not smiling. And he said, we have a problem. We, yes, we did. Uh, what happened, uh, Crayola had automated the, uh, the molding of crayons um, probably 15 years before I joined the company, maybe even 20. And uh, that basically put a lot of competition out of business uh, or they, they decided to go out of business um, because of that. Uh, so we were far and above everybody else, but we also had the only equipment in town to do that. The equipment got regular maintenance, but unfortunately, they missed a piece, uh, and that was very important uh, <laughs> and what, uh, what caused the, the issue. Uh, but what happened was, as the maintenance force was cleaning one of the machines, it literally collapsed. Uh, it was a tabletop, and the, the, the top collapsed, and it was a flat piece of machinery that couldn't make anything anymore. Oh, good grief. Uh, yes. <laughs> And it was like, well, what happened? Well, the story was that when the, uh, the equipment was designed and manufactured at the time, carbon steel was the way to go with that for heat transfer. Mm -hmm. So the entire machine was made out of carbon steel. Well, over a period of time, due to water corrosion, um, minerals running through, whatever, uh, the internals had corroded and what was basically holding the machine up was rust on the inside. Well, when they flushed the machine and washed the rust away, there went the insides and that's why it collapsed. Well, we had a number of those machines and figured that if one went and failed, that there were good chances that the others were not too far behind. So the first thing was to say, 
stop cleaning the insides and machines. Let's just leave them alone for now because we can't afford to have that happen. And now what do we do about it? Uh, so it was quick to get a plan together and it was costly to do it. It w wasn't a cheap thing. Uh, and we had to get vendors and so forth and, and, and all that good stuff. Uh, it was basically about a two to three year proposition to do that. Uh, when I got all the, and it was not just me, but working with other folks, got all the information together and came up with the cost, the executive management decided not to give us all the funding at one time, but to allow us to do four or five machines at a time. Uh, and people would constantly come in and say, well, if we could only do this, if we could only, and I'd go, I know, I know, I know, but we've got limitations, we've got to work around them. So between trying to get the design done, trying to get the money for it, trying to make them happen as quickly as possible before we had more machine failures, because there was no other place to go. Mm -hmm. It was our equipment and our equipment only. There wasn't stuff you could buy anywhere. Uh, it all had to be made and, and fabricated for us, and it took time. So I had a lot of sleepless nights praying to God, dear God, please let these machines function until we get them all modified and repaired and, and going again, uh, wow. which did happen, but it, it led for a lot of sleepless nights, to say the least. Uh, a lot of people that I deal with in the consulting world, when I go to visit them, that's kind of an opening statement is, what keeps you awake at night? And it's a good opening because they will tell you. And there are a lot of things that keep a lot of people awake. That was one big one that happened with me for sure. So did, did the PMs change for those machines um, over, over this, pro as part of this process, uh, revised uh, rounds to make and, and what to measure in terms of uh, maintaining them? Well, absolutely. Because what one of the things that they missed, because we had to develop our own PM program, mm -hmm. since there were no instructions, we weren't buying it from anybody, we had developed them ourselves. One of the things they missed was to open up the machine and look at the internals and see what was going on. They never did that. So it was a closed machine. So okay. while everything looked good on the surface, Underneath the cover, it wasn't so good. And if they had realized that, that the people that were doing that and the engineers who had originally done the, the design and construction, then they probably would have realized that and they, they could have you know, started to make modifications to it and adaptations and so forth. But they didn't. It was something that was missed. It certainly was added to the regular maintenance although with the equipment we use because we start to use stainless steel then we used a cladding process um, where carbon steel was necessary so whatever came in contact with the water was stainless and that pretty well alleviated that corrosion problem but you still had to, to look in, internally and make sure that you did a full inspection of the equipment which wasn't happening at that point so we learned very painful lesson very expensive lesson very scary lesson well, and in, in, in a real case study in the realities of working in this field, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are, are going to have your story resonate with them on knowing the work that has to be done, but knowing the limitations, especially budget that you're provided to get it done with management. It's their responsibility in the end to take the financial equations and, and take the gambles they decide to take uh, as long as it doesn't compromise safety. Did you ever feel that safety was, a, was an issue with this kind of thing? No, it wasn't where anybody was in danger of getting injured. Okay. 
um, because they weren't getting their hands in the way or, or, or anything like that. It was purely from a production functioning standpoint and the fact that they all went out of business. We were out of business because there was no place to get go to get the kind of production that, that we required. Mm-hmm. Was this your teams or, or the, the maintenance teams of, at, at Crayola, were, were they engaged in proactive maintenance uh, uh, where you would have preventive um, rounds and PMs in addition to maybe some predictive stuff? Or was the idea of introducing regular PMs something that was new at that point? Uh, they were good with stuff that they understood and had dealt with for a period of time. There were other areas like uh, when I was in, in, uh, in charge of engineering, we did a lot of vertical integration. We brought a lot of our um, injection molding inside and we were adding machines and molds, uh, injection molds that we hadn't used before. They weren't doing such a good job with that and we had to put a pretty intensive program in in order to make that happen because they would kind of do superficial stuff, particularly with the molds and get them back into operation. And anybody who's um, familiar with injection molding, you've got to do some fairly extensive work on molds over time. You can't just kind of, you know, uh, wipe them down and, and hope for the best. Uh, you've got to tip, take them apart and you've got to check to make sure that everything is okay. Um, there were a lot of times where they would start to lose cavitation because we had multi-cavity molds uh, and all of a sudden we'd be down 25, 30%. Uh, well, first of all, you're losing that production. Secondly, it's putting a strain on the, uh, the molds themselves. So it was a learning process there as well. And we also found out that some of our external uh, molding companies weren't doing the proper maintenance either. So, uh, you know, it was a learning process there as well. But uh, um, the other stuff, so we learned. We learned uh, and we pushed it. um, But by and large, they did a pretty good job. um, Because, again, a lot of the stuff was proprietary to us. If we didn't take care of it, there was no place to turn when it failed. Right, right. No, no standard procedure, no OEM with uh, with with guidance to to offer. This was this was Krill as proprietary equipment. Yep. Wow. Absolutely. If we didn't take care of it, uh, we would pay a price for it. And that's what companies have to realize is they've got to take care of those assets. They don't take care of themselves and they do wear over time and you will get failure at the worst possible time when you need it the most. So if you handle the stuff properly, okay, and, and take care of the maintenance, you've got a lot better shot at not having a problem when you can least afford it or least expect it. My biggest problem was dealing with some of the scheduling folks because they wanted to run the equipment all the time, okay, and didn't want to take it down ever. And I'd say, well, what happens when it fails? And they go, well, that's your problem. Well, <laughs> there's a lot of teamwork that's <laughs> – so we'd, we'd have some definite uh, fights and arguments over that. The maintenance folks were on my side they didn't want to have to deal with failures and having to explain to the plant management and operations folks uh, why they couldn't produce. But the scheduling people, they were a little bit different breed, unfortunately. And that, that should be important. Anybody who has a scheduling department, that should be taken into account. They should be regularly scheduled maintenance. Uh, they should know when it is. They shouldn't be avoiding it or putting it off. Uh, again, kicking the can down the road doesn't help anybody. 
So it's important that you, you maintain whatever you've developed and, and do it well. You can skate maybe for a couple of days or a week, but past that, you better be doing what you need to do. It's like your automobile. If you don't have that properly maintenance, do you know what happens? You're going to be standing on the side of the road, either calling AAA or having your thumb out, uh, hitching a ride. Uh, so you don't want that to happen. In, in my family, my parents are well known for running cars to fail. Uh, and <laughs> the most spectacular failure was a, a 1973 Orange Vega hatchback owned <laughs> by my father. Um, driving it along I-90 in Chicago when something in the engine blew and the hood flipped up right in front of his uh, uh, windshield. Um, somehow he made it over to uh, a side of the side of the highway and made it out safely, but uh, it was dramatic. Yeah, it's scary too. <laughs> that could be injurious to somebody. Yeah. Well, let, let me throw some other wrinkles into our conversation because something you specialize in is lean and supply chain issues. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I've read a lot lately about, of course, supply chain being a challenge um, in the age of COVID where uh, everyone's experiencing the challenge of overcoming sick outs with their people, losing people here and there. And uh, those kind of situations on plants which manufacture the smaller parts can have a rollover effect when everything comes together at the larger plants. Sure. Um, and you have a really interesting take on how and why lean changed uh, back in 2008, and, and then how you see it now evolving in, in post-COVID. So can I ask you first, so what, were, what was your experience with lean best practices right around 2008? How did it change? Well, as everybody's familiar, that was a, a big financial crisis year. Uh, it started in the mortgage industry, but it really rolled over to any kind of business and industry because... Um, Banks started to get stricter on lending. Uh, companies couldn't get their hands on money as uh, quickly. Uh, there was some business suffering because of that. So what happened um, manufacturing-wise was that companies started to cut down on the amount of inventories they were carrying because that's all dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, and it became tougher and tougher to get your hands on materials uh, by calling up and expecting to get the delivery the next day or within a week, it might take uh, several weeks or even months to get it now. Uh, so that was a big change because uh, now you had to plan out better. You couldn't wait till the last minute and expect to get that emergency delivery unless, you know, you, the stars all aligned and you happen to, to be really, really lucky. Uh, so that was a big change for industry because up to then there was lots of inventory that was being carried and you could get your hands on stuff fairly quickly, unless it was something that was really special to you and, and, and took a, a period of time to do. That continued that trend Although companies, money did start to become more available, banks, you know, started to loosen up some and, and so forth. But then when 2019 came with the famous pandemic, it started all over again, especially when basically the country got shut down for what was it, two or three months. Uh, first of all, companies weren't making anything. And then when they started again, uh, they were being scared just like they had been in 2008 about building inventories, okay? Plus there was a demand now, there was pent up demand. So anything they were making was going out as fast as they were making it. 
anybody who's familiar and does food shopping, uh, toilet paper, especially down where I live, was really few and far between for quite a while. Um, because as fast as it hit the shelves, people were snagging it and, and uh, hoarding it and, and doing mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, and that was just uh, a consumer good. So you can imagine industrially what was happening as well. Right. Uh, so once financial situations happen, companies get very scared and get extremely conservative, ultra conservative about what they're doing to the point where um, it becomes a problem. Mm-hmm. And that was what Uh, was experienced when lean first started if you remember lean was get rid of all your inventory you know and just make what you need and that well we're not that adept that we can afford to do that you don't Mm -hmm. get rid of all the inventory you get rid of the stuff you don't need okay that you're never going to sell and i had clients like that um i one of my clients was daytimers they used to carry 600 items for every item they sold well that's going a little bit overboard with inventory so we worked with them to get it more in line um so you don't want to take everything out of the system you want to leave enough where hey you're getting a little uncomfortable but you can still survive pretty well but uh too many companies panicked and 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 went uh like I said, ultra conservative, and that caused the problem. Again, it's starting to open up some, but now you're seeing with uh, particularly the construction trade that materials are getting scarce again, and they're getting very expensive. And that's the other thing that happens when things get scarce, things get expensive, and we have to pay more for them. So there's some real adverse uh, influences that that happen when uh, things like this occur. I think it'll be interesting, too, because as you point out, we've had two major business disruptions in the past 15 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the sort of, you know, uh, a 100-year type disruption where suddenly we've got two in two decades. Um, What should be done regarding lean? I mean, are we we going to, you think, stick to what I keep hearing called, instead of just in time, now it's being called just in case, where there's, (laughs) there's, there's always some cushion on the shelves? It's always a balancing act. Uh, A lot of work had been done uh, with myself and other companies on safety stocks, okay, Mm -hmm. Um, forecasting, doing good forecasting to to, so that you had a good idea as to what was going to uh, to come in in terms of sales requirements and so forth. You don't want to wait until you get the order before you start making it because that can be too late. Uh, so you want to have some inventory. And again, it, it's prudency. All right. You're never going to be 100 percent correct. Nobody ever is. Forecasts just aren't. They're the best guesses and estimates that you have. But, you know, some items you have a pretty good track record of and you can see what you're doing unless there's some major uh program or impact that occurs where all of a sudden you get overwhelmed with demand. But otherwise, you kind of see a steady state of stuff. So you can pretty well predict those. Uh, And you you try to keep a reserve of of inventory. Inventory by itself isn't bad. Mm -hmm. It's too much inventory is bad or the wrong inventory is bad. Uh, And and you got to pay attention to that stuff uh, and adjust accordingly to it. Um, again, we're coming into the summer season now. So what are people going to be buying? They're going to be buying things for the summer. They're going to be buying the sodas and the beers and the barbecue sauces. Well, once that period is over, you don't need as much of that. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, So then you start to cut back on it. You're not going to make as much. You're not going to carry the inventory of that. I had that uh, when I worked with Kraft Foods Mm. Uh, and uh, they would have uh, extra warehouses that they would be storing all this extra stuff and they weren't going to be selling it. So we got them on a program of better forecasting and, and realizing what to make in what seasons and so forth. Because when the, the you know the, the the seasons change and people's tastes change and they're doing more inside stuff instead of outside stuff and and barbecuing and, and all that, then uh, they're making different items uh, and things that they weren't making so much during the, the summer season. And the same goes true in, in other industries. Um, you know, auto sales happen at particular times and then they slough off. Well, you don't want to have auto manufacturers making a gazillion cars when nobody is really buying them, mm-hmm. uh, nor do you want to have a big excess inventory of them. You want to have that available when people are buying and, and, and being able to move that stuff. So, Yeah, and I hear you. As, as someone who was looking for quotes on a new wooden fence, um, I think I'm resigned to going to get a nail gun and some plywood for the moment uh, and putting off the wooden fence at least until next this time next year. I just saw somebody who posted on LinkedIn, they had a sheet of plywood and they were ready to trade it for anybody's Mercedes and uh, maybe a couple of dollars on top of it. So uh, the value of plywood has gone up considerably. <laughs> wow. Well, let me uh, it, close with a question about your business books, because I, I would love to hear more about both of them, um, Influences and Influencers. And especially a book called What About the Vermin Problem? And, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm a guy who fought mice in his house two years ago during an extremely cold winter in Chicago. So could you tell us about uh, what those books are, are covering? Sure. The first one I wrote was What About the Vermin Problem? And the genesis for that was through my consulting career, uh, I worked with different companies and, and with different people. Uh, some, we'd have some odd instances and myself and my colleagues would say, you know, someday that needs to be in a book. And I just kind of cataloged that away in my head. Well, when I retired and I put that term in, in quotes, because I've probably been as busy, if not busier in retirement than I was when I was working full time, mm-hmm. I decided to write a book and, and put those instances out. Uh, so it covers things that I saw companies and people do that uh, were either very good, not so good, or very bad. And I put them into three categories, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So my, um, my pardon to Clint Eastwood on appropriating uh, the term of one of his famous movies. Um, and it wasn't so much that the good could always be good. It could also be bad or it could be ugly mm-hmm. if you did the wrong things, if you made the wrong decisions. So I categorized by the stories that I wanted to tell. And I found four that were good, four that were bad. And bad wasn't where it was life-threatening to the company, but where it could have an adverse influence and and, and cause them time and and effort and maybe even money to to clean up, you know, the headaches that would be ongoing. Ugly was ugly. And in a couple of instances, we had companies that actually closed down because even with the best work and information and recommendations that were made, they did silly things, ugly things, and it caused the businesses to close. We had one uh, where they wanted to put an automated warehousing and retrieval system in. Well, they couldn't afford to do that, nor did they need to. They didn't have that kind of volume, but 
they were bound and determined to. Well, about two years after we got done working with them, couldn't afford to do it. When uh, wound up selling the business to a competitor. Uh, so they're not in business anymore. The competitor still uses the brand name because it's a very strong brand name. Wow. And the owner got money, but he had so much debt that it all went to his debt. And he basically sold his company for nothing. Wow. So, uh, so it, it was kind of an educational experience. My way of working with, with people and saying, if you make the right choices, you'll be successful. If you make the wrong choices, you could either cause yourself some problems or you could basically wind up costing yourself your business. Hmm. So the choices are up to you. Here are some stories about companies and, and what they did right or what they did wrong. Learn from that. Then uh, the person I was working with to get the book out told me, well, nobody ever writes just one book. So she convinced me to write a second book, which was not in the game plan. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had to think about it. And I thought, well, what would be a good um, sequel to this? And I started to think about, because the first book dealt with companies and business practices and that. Now I, I turn more to, to individuals. Uh, and influences and influencers, I started to look back at my career. And even before I started working, when I was in school, and the people who had an impact on me, who either I looked up to and I learned from them and, and wanted to be like them, or the people who I didn't look up to, who I didn't want to be like them, okay, because I, I wasn't happy with the, the, the way they acted and, and, and treated folks. Uh, and I wrote the book on that. And now it was more directed towards, think about the good people you have in your life, people who want to see you succeed, who are encouraging you, who are helping you, uh, particularly helping you um, when you're down and out or you're having some trouble and they're there to provide the guidance that you need, uh, the, the good advice that, that they can give you and, and maybe even physically helping you to a degree uh, and how they shape how you think and how you act. And again, you can learn as much from the not so good people as from the good people as to this is not the way you want to conduct yourself. This isn't the way you want to see things. I've worked with a lot of students uh, on projects out with companies and they would come to me and say, Peter, repeat, why do they do that? And I'd say, <laughs> if, I, if I had that, I'd be a very, very, very wealthy man. Hmm. I said, but someday you're going to be in those positions. And when you are, look back at what you just asked me. Look back at what you're thinking and don't do the same thing. You have a chance to do it differently, but too many people get into positions of authority and then they do the same things that they complained about the people were doing to them. And you're going, why are you doing that? You didn't learn anything from that. You have the ability to make that change to so do it. So that's what influences and influencers about is to get back and look at the people that you're dealing with, how they treat you, how you treat them, uh, how you want to deal with individuals, how you want to deal with business, going back to what about the vermin problem, because that, that impacts how you make decisions. And, and again, it, it's my experiences, my advice. And it's amazing how as people read the book, they will say, you know, I know somebody who's just like that. I had that kind of experience. It's universal. 
it's universal. Um, it's just that we don't talk about it as much as we should. And and if I had one guy who said, if I had only known that years ago when I was in business, I would have done things differently. Well, my hope is that young people will pick that up and, and read it and then never have that statement come come out because they will have had the opportunity to uh, to have somebody share it with them. So that was the uh, the reason for writing the two books. This reminds me of the of the saying: the best time to plant a tree is thirty years ago, and the second best time is now. Yep. Uh, so for those who want to plant trees right now, um, go ahead and seek these books out. They're at www.peakchristianbooks.com, and that link is in the podcast notes. Um, Pete, thank you so much for covering such ground with us. I appreciate your pres- your perspective today. Well, thank you very much. Again, thank you for having me. And I hope that uh, I've helped uh, to shape some people's thoughts and and be an influence on them. And uh, they can also go on the website and get in touch with me if they ever want to chat about something. Uh, I'm happy to to share my experiences and uh, and work with them if need be. Uh, Terrific. Thanks, Pete. Thank you.